Today, we are going to read the same passage we've read the last two Sundays. We are in Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. We're looking at chapter 3. Um, we're looking at verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. We've looked at this the last two Sundays, and whereas the first time through we focused on husbands and wives, and the second time through on parents and children, this time through we will focus on the last section where Paul addresses bondservants and masters. After a little bit of sidetracking, we will end up discussing our work lives as employees or, or bosses. See, Paul is showing this young church in Colossae, and us too today, that the gospel must pervade all areas of our lives, and especially areas that hit close to home, places like family and work. And so today's sermon is titled, New Creations, Old Situations, Part 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we bow in your presence, desiring to know you better. Send us your spirit in abundance today as we meditate upon these words we just read. We pray for our heads and our hearts. We pray that your word would both challenge us and encourage us so that we may live as faithful servants in Christ's kingdom. Amen. Before we look at the topic of the Christian at work, I must address the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Or is it, is it 900 pounds? Or is it an elephant in the room? Well, whatever the metaphor, the issue we need to address first before we move on is slavery. See, there are two Greek words throughout this passage that we need to process. The first is doulos. Depending upon its context, the word doulos is translated either with servant, bond servant, or slave. The second Greek word is kurios, and depending upon its context, the word kurios is translated with either lord or master. In Jesus' day and Paul's day, bond servants or slaves were everywhere. And here we read Paul say that bondservants or, or slaves, depending upon your translation, are to obey their earthly masters. And so the question we cannot skip over this morning is this. Does, does Christianity promote slavery? Now, some of you here this morning are shouting at your screens, no, Pastor Mark, of course we don't think Christianity condones slavery. We know better. But not everyone knows better. 
Some who are part of Grace Church are investigating Christianity. And this, though it may not be their biggest question they have concerning God or faith in Christ, it is one they wonder about. And know this, some of you are students who are either at university or one day will be. And it's possible that one of your professors will take time in his lecture to ridicule Christians and blame Christians for so many ills in the world and perhaps even say that Christianity promotes slavery since there were Christians in the South, people who professed to be Christians, who looked at passages like we just read and concluded that, that their owning of slaves was, was morally justified. But they were wrong, oh, so wrong. And today, as we've been grieving the death of George Floyd for almost two weeks now, we all confess that the racial divide in America that came about as the result of slavery in America, this racial divide still has a long, long way to go before being healed. And so let me take a few minutes to address the falsehood that Christianity somehow promotes slavery, as well as show us how only in the gospel is our hope for reconciliation, unity, and peace to be found. First, the Bible clearly states that slave catching uh, was a capital offense. In Exodus 21.16, we read, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Remember the context of this law of God. The people of God had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They had just been freed. They're in the wilderness. And, and how was it that they came to be, be, be slaves? Well, the sons of Jacob's, they sold their brother Joseph into slavery. God in heaven pronounced judgment upon this when he said stealing a man and selling him is a capital offense. And so all those slave owners in the South who, who wanted to use the Bible to confirm their evil practices, well, there was the correcting verse right there, plain as day. Second, slavery that was experienced in America is different in significant ways from slavery in Jesus' day. Remember, slavery in the Roman Empire was not based on the color of one's skin. They didn't go out to foreign lands and grab people and bring them back to make them slaves. Slavery in Paul's day, though not commendable, certainly not, was not the same slavery as the despicable practice that took place in our country. Also know this, in Paul's day, many people purposely sold themselves as bond servants, as that was the working class way of gaining employment in that day. See, there was no such thing then as blue-collar labor force with labor unions to unite them. And so, for instance, it's been said uh, in ancient Corinth, fully one-third of the population was bond, were bond servants. And understand this, not all were uneducated who, who only performed manual labors. Some were doctors, teachers, managers. Now, I don't want to give the impression that all bond servants were treated nicely. Many were not. This was not a good thing. They were, after all, property. But that being said, many slaves were well cared for. We see one instance in the Bible. Consider the instance of the Roman centurion who traveled to find Jesus because, why, his bond servant was terribly ill. And remember how Jesus offered to go and visit the servant to heal him? And the centurion said, you don't need to go, for you can just say the word, and he will be healed. 
And Jesus marveled at the Roman's faith and he healed the bondservant in that instance from a distance. Another thing we should see from that story is that as though how the Roman centurion was caring for his servant, traveled very far to find Jesus so that his servant could be healed. So there are stark differences between slavery in America and slavery in the Roman world. But it's not enough to argue that slavery in Jesus' day was different than slavery in America. We must see that Christ and Christianity have the only hope for healing all racial divides. How so? Well, first, remember what Paul wrote earlier in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. Here, that's in the church, the body of Christ. There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. A similar word is said in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful word for us. Remember a couple weeks ago when I preached on Colossians 3.11, I mentioned how there was no greater hostility on earth that existed between Jews and Gentiles, or Paul calls them Greeks here. As far as Jews were concerned, the whole world was divided into only two people, Jews and non-Jews, or Gentiles, and Jews despised Gentiles. They shouldn't have. God called them to love the nations, but they had despised the Gentiles, and they called them things like uncircumcised dogs. And yet, in Christ, God has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. All are one in Christ, on the same level. An amazing passage in Ephesians draws this out in greater detail. It's a little long, but but listen closely. Remember that you were, at one time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us, listen, both one, and has what? Broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinance, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Listen, press this deep into your soul. For the gospel doesn't just save you, it, it makes you 
one with people of every ethnicity under the sun who are fellow citizens of Christ's kingdom and members of God's household. Christ came to break down the dividing wall of hostility between the races and between people of different socioeconomic status. And how did he do this? Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. In Ephesians 2.15-16, Making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body. How? Through the cross. The body and blood of Christ on the cross. Jesus has, has reconciled as one, as us as one body. We are united together. Christian, this is who, who we are. And check this out. Jesus, the glorious divine son of God. What did he do? He left heaven to become a doulos a slave. And listen, he died a slave's death so that we may be set free and brought near, not just to Christ, but to each other. Do you remember when the disciples were arguing about who would sit on Jesus' left and and Jesus' right when he came into his kingdom? Remember how Jesus pulled them aside and taught them the way of the kingdom and how it's upside down? He said, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, diakonos, and whoever would be first, that's first is better than great, among you must be slave, doulos, of all. And then he talks about himself, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the picture of what the kingdom is like. It's upside down. Our Lord came not just as a servant, but as a slave. And remember on the night in, in which Jesus was betrayed, how, how he welcomed the disciples into the upper room? One of the disciples should have stooped to wash Jesus' feet, right? But instead, Jesus played the role of the household slave, and he washed all their feet. And then the next day, Jesus died a slave's death on a cross. See, crucifixion was so brutal that Roman citizens were exempt from it. No matter what they did, a Roman citizen could never be crucified. But crucifixion was oh so fitting a death for a slave who stood up against the empire. Do you know in 71 BC there was a slave rebellion named the Third Servile War? The Roman army put an end to it. And listen, approximately 6,000 slaves were crucified along the Appian Way. Jesus, the Son of God, came to live the life of a, of a slave, of a servant, who gave his life as a what? Ransom for many. Jesus died for every nation, for every tongue, for every tribe. And one day when he returns, people from every nation, tongue, and tribe, from every century, will be completely one with each other and with Christ as we live upon this new heaven on earth in the age to come. My friends, not only does Christianity not promote slavery, it is the world's only hope for peace between Jew and Greek, male and female, slave and free, black and white, you name it. Only Jesus can tear down the wall of hostility and make us to be one body. 
And that is what he has done. And because he has made us one, let us, by the power of the Spirit, live out our oneness together. Let us care for and fight for the rights of others that are being trampled upon, even this past week. For we are our brother's keeper. Now, let us continue on then in our study of this passage. Paul is addressing Christians who are bondservants or slaves, and they're serving in a master's household. And in, this, in, this, and in the final verse, he's addressing masters who have bondservants and, and who serve in their household. Listen, understand this. In that church in Colossae, some of the members were bondservants and some of the members were masters and they worshiped together on Sundays. They sang together. They enjoyed each other's company. They broke bread together. They lived lives together in the family of God. They, they discipled each other. They, they evangelized together. As I said a few weeks ago, in some of the churches, there were actually bondservants or slaves who held office in the church, like deacons or elders. Can you imagine a, a, a master of a household having to come under the leadership of a bondservant? <laughs> but that's what the gospel allows for. Now, while there isn't a direct one-on-one -on -one correlation between being a bondservant and being an employee, or between being a master and a boss, it's true, sometimes though, bosses behave like masters, and at times employees feel like bondservants under a harsh boss. And so the big idea here in our text is that whether you are an employee, or whether you are a boss, or perhaps both, you are to live to please our good and loving master in heaven, Jesus Christ, in how you live and in how you work. Paul says that the reason why bondservants are to obey their masters in all things is seen in, in verse 24. What does he say? You are serving the Lord Christ. And the reason earthly masters are to treat bondservants justly and fairly is seen in uh, chapter 4, verse 1, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This might be hard for our minds to grasp, but Paul is saying that in your workplace, um, that your workplace is to be seen as an arena in which your love and devotion to Christ and your willingness to model sacrificial love, what it does is it shows the world your Savior and the way of your Savior. And, and so, how is it that the Christians are to honor Christ in how they work? Paul gives us a couple simple points. First, in verse 22, he says, Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. By way of eye service speaks to, to that work attitude where you appear to work hard while your boss is watching, but then slack off when he leaves. You've, you've done this before, right? You saw the boss coming, so you closed your web browser or, or put your cell phone in your pocket and tried to look like you were busy doing work stuff. This approach to work is based on an outward appearances, appearances that are meant to mislead. Instead, Paul says we're to work with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Christians, 
no matter your station in life, we are to work wholeheartedly with sincerity. Remember the sentence right before our passage? Colossians 3.17, And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The entirety of our lives as Christians are to be lived in gratitude for our Lord and our Heavenly Father. Everything we do is to be done in the name of our Lord Jesus. Husbands and wives, parents and children, bosses and employees. Don't get caught up on the phrase fearing the Lord. Fearing the Lord means that you have holy reverence for Christ. He is your, he's your Lord. He's a loving Lord, but he's your Lord. And he is worthy of every thought or action that you have. When you relate in the workplace with a sincere heart to your boss and coworkers, with an eye on honoring Christ, listen, the Lord is pleased with you. Even if you suffer for your humility before them, listen, Christ will lift you up and, and honor you. Maybe not in this lifetime, but certainly in the age to come. That is the point that Paul is, is describing in verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance of your reward. First off, slaves or bondservants had no inheritance. While many were set free by their masters uh, in their master's will when they died, many of them bought their own freedom. They, see, they, they, most of them got paid a small amount. They were able to buy their own freedom in their late 30s. But, but the notion of having an inheritance, this was music to their ears. And listen, it should be to our ears too. The inheritance God gives us is spectacular. Christ came to redeem us, redeem us. That's emancipation language, my friends. He redeems us from slavery to sin and establishes himself as our new Lord or master. The Greek word is the same, kurios, Lord or master. And is he not a good Lord? He is just and fair. He came to die a rebellious slave's death on the cross so that we may be literally set free from serving sin and serving Satan. And now we belong to Christ and his kingdom. And one day our Lord will put an end to all that plagues this world, including racism and hostility and wars. He will do this once and for all. And all of God's people, of every nation, tribe, and tongue, will dwell on this earth in spectacular glory. Listen, the riches of Christ in heaven are ours. This age to come is, is, is our inheritance. And so, Christian, listen, you have a spectacular inheritance kept in heaven for you. The grace of God has brought you into an almost indescribable situation, one that will last for all eternity. And this life you now have is a testing ground so that your faith may be purified, and your love for Christ expanded. Paul is saying to us this morning, look to Christ, ponder God's grace towards you, consider the inheritance that is being kept for you, and, and therefore in response, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. But you say, 
but, but what about my cruel boss? He, he really doesn't deserve my full devotion. Well, check this out. Paul has a truly satisfying answer for that. Look at verse 25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. You see what Paul is saying? Paul is saying your earthly master, your boss, is a jerk? Okay, I get it. And so does God. He sees everything. And the wrongdoer will be paid back. Don't you worry. There's a certain freedom that God gives you when you begin to trust him with paying back the wrongdoer. It frees you from having to feel like you must have to pay back your boss. You are the one who has to bring the justice. It actually allows you to actually be free to live out the gospel of grace before your boss. It allows you to think, okay, God knows how hard my boss makes my life. He knows how overlooked and mistreated I am, how much in need of a raise I am. And my boss, with all of his sins, he's in God's hands, not mine. Which means I'm free to love my broken and sinful boss and desire that he or she comes to experience God's grace so that he or she will not experience God's judgment. Do you see how knowing that God will take care of all the wrongdoing, how it actually frees you? to love like Christ, and to serve faithfully, even in difficult work environments? Lastly, Paul gives instruction to earthly masters. He calls those in authority on earth to treat others justly and fairly. Look at Colossians 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Remember this letter from Paul is being read in a church where there are bondservants present and there's masters present. Just a few verses before they read together um, how, the, how the gospel breaks down all racial and economic barriers. Colossians 3.11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. In Christ, there is but one body. The cross levels the playing field for all, and it lifts all up in Christ as one body. Isn't, isn't the gospel beautiful? Through the cross, God does what we human beings cannot do on our own. He brings unity with diversity. And so Paul instructs masters to remember they too have a kurios, a master in heaven, the kurios, the Lord, Jesus Christ. And so they are to treat their bondservants as Christ treats all his followers with justice and fairness. Now, Paul doesn't elaborate. He doesn't go into case studies. He doesn't give 10 rules for being the best boss ever. He simply wants them to ponder their relationship with Christ, who is their Lord, ponder God's mercy and grace as justice and fairness and patience towards themselves, and then act justly and fairly, however that must be worked out in their particular situation. For those of you who have positions of authority at work, how does this instruct you? How does it challenge you? Have you come to understand that greatness in Christ's kingdom means humble service to those beneath you in rank? 
Do you seek to live in humility before your employees? Do you seek to love and serve them? Do you desire their progress in flourishing? A number of you know that, that I owned a computer business at the time I, be, I came to faith in Christ. It was in my late 20s. And prior to bending my knee to Christ as my Lord, I lived for Mark. And guess what? I lived for Mark as Lord. And I tended to view my employees as my employees. Not that I was harsh or a cruel taskmaster, but my view of them was that they were my tools that must work to pad my income statement. Now, after coming to faith in Christ, I began to view my employees as valuable assets in their own right, by God's grace. I began to to desire to see them flourish in their own right. I stopped looking so much at how they could benefit my bottom line. And I began to take delight in the fact that our business was a joyful place to work and that they were able to support their own families and pursue their own dreams. When I sold the business, I did not go with the highest bid. That company wanted to only buy the assets and the customers. They were going to break up the business. There was no guarantee that any of my employees would be retained. So I went with the lower bid. It was quite a bit lower. And I sold the company, uh, my company, to a company headed by a supposed Christian man. He assured me that he would care for our employees. You know what? Within two years, he drove them all away but one employee, a Muslim Pakistani man who graduated from the University of South Alabama. I hired Assad on an H-1 visa, and our company was sponsoring him for permanent status. He was a, a sweet and faithful and loyal employee. Now, because of his visa status, the new owner knew he could treat Assad unjustly and unfairly. So you know what he did? I couldn't believe it. He cut his pay in half, knowing that, that, that Assad had nowhere else to go and work. It saddens me to this day that this supposedly Christian man was so ruthless, so dishonest, so unjust and unfair with the people who had once worked for me. My friends, how we live our lives really matters. We will, we will stand before our maker one day and the wrongdoer will be paid back for all the wrong he has done. Even Christians will be judged for our work. But I do not wish hell on that man who bought my business. My hope is that he comes to know the Lord, that he repents of his wrongdoing and he receives mercy and grace instead of justice in hell to all of us today. Is Christ your Lord? Consider his love for us. He, he left glory in heaven, came and lived as a servant, and suffered as a servant. He died a slave's death on the cross for you and for me. And as he hung there, not for any of his sins that he had done, he was sinless, but he was there on the cross for your sin and my sin. As he hung there, he interceded, listen, for the very people who were crucifying him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus knows that the wrongdoer will be paid back in full. He knows that hell awaits. And so he intercedes 
and prays for mercy even as they mock him from below. And as Jesus died, one of them, the centurion who was in charge of the execution squad, he saw the manner in which Jesus died and he realized what he had done. And he declared, surely this man was the Son of God. Our Lord lived as a bondservant on earth. He served you and me, and he died a slave's death in our place so that you and I could be set free from slavery to sin and set free to what? To become slaves to righteousness. This mercy and grace are for everyone. It matters not if you're rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. At the cross, we become one body, one church, with one Savior, one hope, one inheritance. Is this not the message our world needs? This is the message God gives us in Christ. We have a wonderful master in heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. In all things, let us serve him with joy. Let's pray. Jesus, our Lord, we praise you for how you did not consider equality with God as something to be held on to, but you emptied yourself and took on human flesh. In humility, you lived and died and rose for us, that we would be redeemed from slavery to sin, to become slaves of righteousness. Right now, we commit to you, our Lord, our Master. We seek to honor you with our work lives, and we seek to honor you as ministers of reconciliation with regards to race relations. Enable us by your grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.